from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. Learn more at aarp.org wv. The Charleston Gazette Mail, using its CGM app to deliver the latest news, traffic, and weather alerts, keeping you in the know while you're on the go. Lumos Networks, online at lumosnetworks.com. West Virginia University, online at wvu.edu. Orion Strategies, professional public relations, government affairs, creative services, and research and polling, with offices in Charleston, Buchanan, Martinsburg, Pittsburgh, and Columbus. Welcome to the Legislature Today from the Capitol. I'm Suzanne Higgins. It would be hard to match the extended emotion in the House of Delegates last night as the Campus Self-Defense Act came to the floor after a day of procedures that took it off and then back on the House special calendar. Joining us now, senior reporter Dave Mistich. Uh, thanks for being here, Dave. Hey, um, multiple attempts last night to amend the bill by the House Judiciary Chairman and that put him up against the Senate Majority Leader over and over. That's right, and you know, Delegate John Schott, he's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Um, I, I think everyone realized, you know, once this bill made it to the floor that he wasn't in support of it. He had offered a series of amendments, something like seven, eight of them. Uh, all of them struck down, uh, but one of them. Uh, but whenever he opened up, there was a debate opened up on, on these amendments, uh, Delegate Schott, uh, spoke about some of the intent behind you know this this series of amendments. We'll take a, a quick look at him explaining the motivation for all of those proposed changes to the bill. Let me just say this: I know I count, I can count. I know there's a, there's a desire for campus carry, but campus carry is not a uniform act. It's crafted in each place. This is not you can't go somewhere and pull out a campus carry bill. And what I've attempted to do in my amendments is pull out some of the better provisions and some of these other states that take into account the very the very the variations in the in the places that they are texas can by no means be considered a liberal bastion and they have these same protections there most of the amendments that i have crafted are based on texas i think they're reasonable i think they add some some additional flexibility to those institutions to 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 direct activities on their own campuses. For those of you who are believers in local control, that's what I've tried to do is build a little more local control into these amendments. But one of Chairman Schott's uh, amendments did pass. Yeah, and it, it didn't really seem to do much as far as what the bill, uh, what you know, the campus carry provisions would have allowed. Um, what it did call for is for the colleges and universities to annually report uh, back to the legislature on you know the finances, student enrollment, staff and faculty uh, retention, uh, as well as like any incidents that that deal with handguns, uh, we'll take a quick look at you know Chairman Schott wrapping up uh, this series of amendments uh, right here as just before the House voted on that final am amendment that was adopted. They say that ignorance is bliss, and it appears that there's some in this uh, chamber that prefer to be blissful. Uh, 
I, uh, I can't, I just incredible to me that anybody would be concerned that we would ask the institutions that have to enforce this, that have to bear any costs that are involved in this, would report back to us what those costs were, what those effects were. Certainly there's nobody better to comment on retention of staff, recruitment of staff, than the institution that has to recruit or retain those staff. How is that, how is that uh, unreasonable? Uh, I'm just incredulous that anybody would suggest that that's a burden or that that has any, any, any bearing on anything other than giving us the information that we need to have to determine whether we've made the right decision or we need to make some modifications. Uh, once again, uh, in all, I, I urge adoption for the last time. I'm sure people are happy to hear that. And there you heard, you know, some of the frustration, the exhaustion in Delegate uh, Schott's, uh, you know, um, voice there. Um, again, that, that last amendment was adopted. Uh, I think that, you know, beyond that, once the, the bill moved on to full debate of the bill itself after that amendment was adopted, heard a lot of really interesting arguments from both sides, those in support, those opposed to this bill. Uh, we'll take a, a look at uh, a string of, of, of comments from delegates on both sides of the aisle those in support and those opposed to the campus carry bill. There is just as much opposition to this bill from higher education and the general public as what there was to Senate Bill 451 from K-12 public education and the general public. And let me say, I've been here 27 years, and I've never seen the higher education community and the institutions of higher education rally against a bill, you know, like they have this bill. For me, this is an easy vote, because this is me walking from my class to my car alone. I see that, I saw it all the time while I, while I was in college, while I was on campus. And I think back to those times and I think back and I think about these women who underwent ex horrible experiences. And I'm voting for this bill for them. And for any woman, and I wanna make sure that future generations of, of women in West Virginia don't have to say me too. I've heard us talk about how, how young people's frontal lobes aren't formed how we're going to lose international students, how young people aren't responsible, not fully formed frontal lobes. We're going to lose international students. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that we forego the protections of the Bill of Rights or the provisions of the West Virginia Constitution if we have people from foreign lands in the room. I don't care if we lose international students at our schools. We don't dump our Constitution in the trash because we're afraid of losing tuition dollars. People get to protect themselves. I think we certainly missed an opportunity to add some additional areas of, uh, of protection and concern for higher ed. I would join my friend from the fifth and say that uh, the way we've gone about getting to this point, this policy question before you, I think uh, has strained our relationship with higher education. 
and I think it will indeed hurt uh, recruitment and enrollment of students in higher education. I think it's important that we get to this policy decision at some point. I'm disappointed in the manner we got there. I am a survivor of rape. I am a survivor of sexual assault. I am a survivor of domestic violence. I am me too. If I had a concealed weapon the night that I was raped, I would have went in my room and I would have committed suicide because that was shame, that was hurt. You putting a gun in my hand would not have given me power. You put a gun in my hand in the mental state I was in. It would have been fight or flight. And I don't know who would have been a friend or a foe. That's what this bill does. The Campus Self-Defense Act did pass 59 to 41, not strictly along party lines. Nine Democrats supported the bill. Nine Republicans voted against the bill. And of course, passage of the bill was communicated to the Senate today. At the end of the Senate floor sessions, remarks were made by Senator Cory Palumbo, the minority whip. Let's take a listen to that. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, just real briefly, in my 17 years I've been down here, I feel like the Senate has, the vast majority of the time, been the more rational body in the Senate. Over the last couple of years, I feel like maybe the House was, from time to time, wrestling that away from us. But last night, the House passed Senate Bill 20, was it? 2519, Campus Carry Bill. So the Senate's going to again get our chance to reclaim our place as the more rational body. This bill, which is objected to, I believe, by just about every college in the, in the state. Um, you know, as, as you and I have talked about before, one of our biggest issues is we continue to, to lose our young people out of state. This bill is gonna do nothing, I think, but continue to cause that to happen. So it's my hope that the Senate will reclaim our our position that we've had for most of my time here is a more rational body in this uh, legislature and handle this bill accordingly. As we've reported, Senate Bill 348, which passed out of the Senate yesterday, would raise the age to sell or purchase tobacco products from 18 to 21, including vaping products and e-cigarettes. The bill also restricts smoking in a vehicle when minor children are passengers. Randy Yoe got a public perspective from many in the age group who would be affected. The University of Charleston has a campus-wide no-smoking policy that pertains to all students, faculty, and staff. UC does have, however, two designated smoking areas. There's no tobacco usage allowed in the Geary Student Union cafeteria. That's where we gathered public opinion on West Virginia raising the age to buy or sell tobacco from 18 to 21 years old. I mean, at the end of the day, kids are going to do what they want to do, and if they really want to do something, then they'll find a loophole to get what they want. So I don't think changing the age will really do much, because everyone who's 18 knows someone who's 21 that can get them what they want, you know? So if they want it, they'll get it. Uh, I personally don't think tobacco's uh, good in any way. Um, it's very addictive. It uh, causes many diseases, cancer, those kind of things. Um, and anything that they can do to prevent young people from um, 
getting addicted and using tobacco, uh, anything they can do to prevent that would be a good thing. I think it's a good idea personally because I feel like that helps people make better judgment of whether they do want to put that into their bodies. I feel like a lot of people, especially e-cigarettes, smoke them because they think it's cool and I feel like at 21 they probably would think differently. Well, I think it's bad because you're just fermenting like by ways for people to try and get it because people are going to get it eventually some way or some other. Like to do with alcohol, it's 21 and people still find a way to purchase alcohol. So if you raise, the same thing with tobacco. I'm a smoker and I'm a parent. And how do you feel about the age raising from 18 to 21 for all tobacco products? I totally agree. I, um, my son is very um, influenceable, if that's even a word, but um, the thought of him smoking scares me and it, um, it doesn't bother me. I don't smoke in the car, I don't smoke in the home, I never have and I never will. From Tobacco Thoughts here at the University of Charleston, Senate Bill 348 now rests with the House of Delegates Health and Human Resources Committee. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. The massive foster care bill is under consideration in a meeting this evening by the Senate Health and Human Resources Committee. Health reporter Kara Lofton will lead a discussion on the bill in just a minute, but first a clip from part one of that meeting earlier this afternoon. Deputy Secretary of the DHHR, Jeremiah Samples, describes the foster care crisis and why the department is moving to a managed care system. We are in the midst of a child welfare crisis in West Virginia. I've testified to that uh, multiple times in multiple committees, as has Secretary Crouch and, and other uh, folks from DHHR. Uh, but you do not need us to tell you that. I'm sure you see it in your communities. You see it on television. It's uh, unfortunately the, the, you know, the rationale itself. We're in the midst of an opioid epidemic, a, a drug crisis and this drug crisis has exploded the child welfare system in our state. Uh, we've had an increase of 67%, 67% the number of children taken into state custody uh, since 2014. Uh, you know, our ability to manage this issue uh, has been tested. We're bursting at the seams. Uh, it, I think it is far worse than what many folks even realize when we talk about it. Uh, you know, each of these numbers is an actual child uh, these are actual families uh, that are in trauma, that are suffering, and there is no more important issue that we deal with at DHHR uh, than the child welfare uh, questions. We had a case recently where, uh, unfortunately, a kid had to go to an emergency room because the records weren't properly transferred, and that child almost died because they had a colostomy bag that needed to be evacuated and no one knew. And you know, those are the types of issues that just simply can't happen uh, we need another set of eyes, another support. Should we have made sure that, that those records followed? Absolutely. But I can't testify under oath that we do the best job every time. Piece of and, the bill. I mean, what do you understand about what the arguments are against that? Against the managed care component? Yes. I think folks, uh, I think there's a general concern about privatization. Um, that any time you move from a government-managed service to a private entity, what is motivating that entity? In fact, for parental placements in institutions, uh, especially out of state, we have seen, and Commissioner Bean will speak to this uh, later, we have seen a decrease in parental placements uh, in institutional <coughs> care because the managed care company has been able to wrap around those services. Why do they do it? Well, it's, it's best practice 
but it also is cheaper. It's, mm -hmm. it's less expensive to provide care for someone in their home, in their community, than it is to pay $400 a day per child uh, uh, in, in an institution. And so, um, you know, the, the incentives line up properly for the better public policy. I'm Kara Lofton, West Virginia Public Broadcasting Health Reporter, here with Amy Kennedy Rickman of West Virginia NECO and Kristen O'Sullivan, who is with Our Children, Our Future. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So the MCO is seen as the most controversial part of the foster care bill. Ms. O'Sullivan, Our Children, Our Future does not support moving forward to a managed care plan. Um, talk to me a little bit why that is. Well, there are a number of reasons why that is. Um, one of the major reasons is that we really believe that um, services need to be strengthened. There are many things going right with our child welfare system and certainly within DHHR um, that need to be supported and built up from the community level. Um, this goes the complete opposite direction and takes what we have of federal funds and other things gives it out to an out-of-state MCO corporation who then will use 10 to 15% of it for profits and for administrative costs. That same amount of money, the 22 dollars to $25,000, could be used to strengthen things like Safe at Home to get us ready for the Families First initiative that's coming down right now from the feds that we don't even know exactly what's going to be required through that. Um, we really feel strongly that we need to go back to where we were in West Virginia back in the early 90s when we were doing wraparound services and we had started that on a pilot level until those funds had been pulled out and put somewhere else. Um, DOJ had a bad report that came in that folks are really aware of and things needed to be changed and within that plan there was not at all a call for going to an MCO. What there was a call for was strengthening things on a community-based level for kids both coming into care and also kids within the community. So, um Ms. Kennedy Rickman, you work for NECO, um, which is a foster care organization that serves several states, including West Virginia, which is where you're focused, and Georgia. Um, Georgia currently uses an MCO um, for their foster care system, and NECO supports that same move in West Virginia. Talk to me a little bit about why that is. So um, we're actually currently working with MCOs in the foster care population in Georgia and Kentucky. And what we've been able to see through that work is um, a continuity of care. Right now in our system in West Virginia, as Deputy Secretary Samples was speaking to, things medically are falling through the cracks. And this is, it's a big problem. And that care manager that would be provided to the foster child and the foster parent as a part of the team will really be able to pull those records together and allow for that continuity of care. So if children come in and they've already been vaccinated, they're gonna be able to get their hands on those records. If they're on medications that aren't on site when that child is removed, we don't often know that. So they're gonna be able to get us that information so that children really are getting the medical care they need as well as behavioral health. So at the end of the day, what we've seen with the MCOs is a level of accountability, of efficiency, and assistance to the state because we are in a crisis right now and CPS workers can only do so much. And they're not medical experts and my foster parents are not medical experts nor are 
are my case managers. So we really need that person who can help tie everything together so that the children are getting what they need in that realm. The bill actually includes nine components. Ms. O'Sullivan, are there any that you're in favor of? We're in favor of slowing the process down. Let's get all the stakeholders to the table. Um, DHHR in committee meetings just today and then in budget meetings earlier um, have talked about this being an open and transparent process. Um, we don't feel that it has been. Um, and where we feel it's rushing, they don't feel rushed because they've been working on it for three to four years, including with MCOs coming in and helping to write the RFPs that then they're in competition for. Um, within that, and I greatly appreciate what Amy was talking about, about the care managers. Care managers, I think, are a great piece. In the RFP, it does not require a care manager for each child. Um, the RFP has many pieces that are within those nine components that are not actually a part of the contracted RFP that MCOs helped to develop. Um, we are asking that we take this money that would go somewhere else and go to a for-profit um, company and instead invest that very money right back in our own communities and strengthen the services that we have to provide. Wraparound services, fantastic. Um, additional behavioral health services, absolutely. Um, but we need to stop taking our federal funds and giving them away in West Virginia. We need to strengthen um, from within. Um, we we absolutely are in agreement that we're in crisis and that something has to happen and we believe that that something needs to come from inside with everyone at the table together. And for you, are there any of the components that you have reservations about? Um, we've really been on board with the foster care pieces of the bill. There are a few pieces that do not impact the foster our foster care children and um, they impact other children who are um, in different out-of-home care situations so um, there aren't really that any that we are not in favor of at this point and, and this is for both of you I mean what do you feel like would need to happen in order for you guys to meet in the middle and for in order for this to sort of become Oh, I think there are many ways to be able to meet in the middle. First of all, would be to start meeting, <laughs> um, to have an open, transparent process where we come to the table and we, and we begin discussing those things. Um, organizations like Children's Home Society, Steve Tuck, um, who's the executive director there, um, Marissa Sanders, who is with the Foster Adoptive and Kinship Parents um, Network. Those folks weren't invited to the table. Um, those are key people that we need um, to be discussing these issues. There's also other really important pieces that are missing um, that I know we, this is kind of changing a little bit, but in Georgia itself, um, they found that there are many services that are not being covered by the MCO. And so the state has had to go back and backfill so that there's $5,000 per child on a county level that they can access and $10,000 on a regional level that they can access for the services that they can't get through the MCO. Um, I don't think West Virginia has even taken the time to look at that yet. Um, not to mention that when a child gets um, denied the care that they need, which happens quite a bit. In Texas, for instance, who has been doing this, there are 10 denials a day. Um, now, the legislature has made 
some changes to the bill is hoping to put in pieces to have accountability through the MCO to report on those. Um, but that's not currently in, in the RFP. And, and how about for you? I mean, what, what would need to happen in order to meet in the middle with these different sides? I think that we do need to meet together. Um, I think that a big part of the legislation is really setting the mandate that these things occur. And there are timelines drawn out in the legislation for exactly that, to bring stakeholders to the table to be a part of finalizing items. So. I think that there's a time to get things moving and then there is that time for us to bring everyone together to really work out the details. The, the legislators, they're not going to mandate everything that needs to be done. That would be the stakeholders in the department. I absolutely agree with her. The big challenge is this bill does, man does mandate managed care. So yes, we can all get to the table, but that big decision would already have been taken away and taken off the table. And those are the issues that we need to, to address together before this move forward. We have about 45 seconds left. Um, the bill has gone through a few revisions already. Um, and actually, we're continuing to hear testimony as we speak um, in committee. So do you feel like the legislators are hearing your concerns and taking that into account with this bill? Yes. Um, but at the same time, um, they need to hear more. The, ch the challenges, there's so much going on this session. We, we all know we're all pretty exhausted if you see the, the bags <laughs> under our eyes. Um, <laughs> was just talking with some legislators um, this afternoon about this and they want to hear more. The challenge is they're getting so much on uh, other very, very important bills like campus carry and other things and there's the drowning out of this piece. So it needs to happen quickly that we get that or we need to slow the process down and, and table this until next session. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Tomorrow on the Legislature Today, the Weekly Reporters Roundtable will take a look at what bills survived crossover day and are now being considered in the opposite chamber. I'm Kara Lofton. From everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us and have a great evening.